Thank you, David, so much for leading us in that time of singing and praise. And now, dear brothers and sisters, it's time for us to begin our study of the Word of God. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up at this time to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 today. So that's Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We'll begin by reading the text as a whole together. We will pause and pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and soften our hearts this morning, and then we'll get into our time of teaching. So let us read together, Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we just pray that since you inspired these words, you spoke these words, Lord, more than that, you are the one who brought about these events of which we read in the scriptures, that on that day of Pentecost some 2,000 years ago, as your disciples were gathered and waiting and assembled and praying and reflecting on the scriptures and applying them to their lives, Lord, they awaited this very moment for the promise that was given to them to Jesus by the Father. And so, Lord, as we read about what you did for them, we pray that that same Holy Spirit would do for us this morning, opening up our eyes so that we can see, creating in us new and clean hearts so that we might receive, and power from above, from heaven itself, that we might not only be willing, but able to do the work and ministry of Jesus to which each and every Christian has been called. Lord, we pray if anyone is joining us this morning or watching later that might not know Jesus as Savior, and perhaps in their minds they look at Jesus merely as a great moral teacher, and yet they find themselves an inability to do the things Jesus calls them to do because they do not understand and do not believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. So if anyone is watching and does not believe they do not know the power of God. We pray they would come to know the power of God through believing in Jesus. Touch their hearts. Bless all of us, we pray, for the glory of your name and the benefit of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What if I told you that the greatest problem in the world today is not that non-Christians aren't willing to become Christians, but that believers are unwilling to become laborers. That might be a challenging statement, and perhaps you think, well, that's your opinion, Pastor. I would beg to differ, because I can actually point to the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might raise up and send out laborers into the harvest. Those words of Jesus spoken 2,000 years ago, don't lament about the condition of the world, broadly speaking, as though there's no hope for the world. For he himself is the hope of the world. And he knows that he is able to accomplish the redemption of which the Father had predetermined beforehand, before the world was even made, that in the eternal Son, in Christ, through the Spirit, God would redeem for himself men and women, young and old, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from all over the world, to belong to Christ, to belong to God's family, to have everlasting life, to attain to the resurrection of the dead, life with eternal joy forever. So Jesus is confident in his mission. But what he actually laments is the unwillingness for God's own people to go out into the world and reach non-believers there. We know both from anecdotal experience and stories, as well as empirical studies, that the vast majority of professing Christians or church members do not serve or participate in the life of the church or the mission of God. You've probably heard of the 80-20 rule, and some people would say that applies not just to Christian institutions, but institutions broadly speaking. But let us ask if it should apply to the Christian church. Should 80% of the body of Christ stand by while 20% do all the work? That does not seem to be what Luke, as he pens this gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, that does not seem to be Luke's perspective. And what I want to show you over the course of just the next couple of weeks as we focus on Pentecost and reinforced in the coming few months as we continue our study through the book of Acts, what I want to show you is that the Holy Spirit is the gift, not for some of God's people, but all of God's people. And that the purpose of that giving of the Spirit is not only the ability to be sanctified, to walk with Jesus, to repent of sin, to do righteousness, but to be laborers, enabled to go and do the work of the ministry, to give their lives fully to God in sacrificial service for the growth of of the kingdom. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so I want to contribute a little bit today through Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 as to how we should think about Pentecost. So walk with me now as we begin in verse 1 of our text this morning. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, many people skip right on by that phrase when it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, as though that's just like, oh, it happened on a certain day and not a big deal. It's just marking time, just so that it's historically accurate. Uh, friends, this is actually a very significant statement. And for those of you that might not know what Pentecost is, what the day of Pentecost is, let me inform you, because it's extremely important, not just for marking time, but supplying meaning to the events. It's explaining what is going on, and it is highlighting the sovereign purpose of God in human history. How so, you might say? Well, let me unpack that for you. So Pentecost is actually a Greek word, and it's the rendering of a Hebrew festival in the Old Testament. That festival was called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. So it's a particular celebration. And that celebration is celebrating God as the one who brings forth fruit. Specifically, 
In ancient Israel, it was the idea that Israel was to recognize that everything they had materially, so the crops that they would grow, the food that they would eat, uh, effectively the, the money, the, the finances, the means of exchange and goods and services were all provided by God. And Israel was supposed to give the first fruits, not to what they wanted to do, not to their bills, not to themselves, not to their entertainment. The first and the best, I might add, were to be given to God. Because again, it's not merely a legalistic requirement. This is spiritual formation. In other words, when you give your first and your best to God, you are beginning to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You are becoming more and more like Christ. You are giving of yourselves. So again, it's not just about a technical requirement, as many people perceive giving, tithing, offering, all that kind of a thing. Rather, it is spiritually formative. We become where we invest. We become where we invest. Jesus put it this way, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where do you invest your time, your money, your energy, your resources, your thoughts? Where do you invest it? If it's not Jesus, then your heart is going there. And what God wants is for us to invest in him. He wants us to love him. So Pentecost would be this feast of harvest, giving to God. But there's more going on there. Because this, the word Pentecost actually means 50. And it's called that because this happens 50 days after the feast of the Passover. The feast of the Passover, 50 days. Now go back in time and remember what happened during Passover. Well, in the Old Testament, Passover, of course, marked the exodus from Egypt when the Israelites were instructed by God through Moses to kill a lamb without blemish, to mark its blood on the doorposts and on the sides, and the angel of death would pass over them. They would be spared. They would avoid judgment by this angel of death because of the blood of the lamb. So it's no coincidence whatsoever that Jesus is recorded in the New Testament as dying on Passover. Because Jesus is God's true and better Passover lamb. The original Passover in Old Testament is not the Passover. It is not the archetype of it. Rather, the true and better Passover, to which the original one in the Old Testament points to, was actually Christ. As John the Baptist declared as Jesus walked by when he was baptizing in the Jordan, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the true Passover Lamb. Interestingly, I would also point out that just a couple days after, so Passover would occur during the 14th day of the month of Aviv or Nisan, and a couple days later was a feast of first fruits. Now, interesting, the Feast of First Roots would be the third day. Now, everyone should know about the third day. That's the day Christians declare Jesus rose again from the dead. But not many Christians realize this is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 and 23, when he refers to Christ and his resurrection as the first 
fruits. It's no coincidence that Jesus rose again on the third day. That is the day of first fruits. And so what we are seeing here, friends, by highlighting that what is taking place, the outpouring of the Spirit, is on the Feast of Harvest, that Jesus rose again from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, that Jesus died on the Feast of Passover, is that Jesus is the substance and the fulfillment of all of Scripture, of all of the Old Testament. It is all founded and premised upon him. He is the eternal word, the logos, to which all of scripture is pointing. And now as we get to the New Testament, the Bible is focusing more and more on Jesus. And then henceforth from the book of Acts into the epistles and summarizing in the book of Revelation, we are seeing Christ explained and Christ expounded and Christ glorified. And so what we see here, friends, as a practical note for us, a takeaway this morning, is that all of history is under the sovereignty of God. Many people in the modern world think that history basically is out of control, except for the manipulation of sinful men, and yet God, once in a while, will intervene miraculously and try to tweak things. But that is not biblical. God is not simply involved once in a while. Rather, God is involved with all of history, getting it all where he wants to go, down to the very days and the feasts and the moments and the details, and even the sins of men as we saw. Even Judas's sin and betrayal was purposed by God, declared, prophesied beforehand by God, and used for the glory of God. Now, friends, if that is true, if all of world history is under the sovereignty of God and he is able to get all things, including the sins of men, where he wants them to go, how much more this morning in our own personal lives when we're tempted to believe that all this stuff is out of control? I'm not in control of this family member or that family member. I'm not in control of my, my finances or the, the IRS or you know my, my debtors. I'm not in control of my, my physical health. I've got a bad bill of health from the doctor. I look at the news. I look at the government and politics. And, and you feel helpless. And you feel out of control. But friends, should any believer in the God of the gospel believe that? Friends, that is the kind of fear that comes from the enemy. Because somebody who knows the God of the gospel knows that God is sovereign over all of human history. And even though to our naked eye, I agree, it does look many times in life, my own included, it seems like things are out of control, and I'm certainly not in control, and yet God is in control. I hope this morning you can see that all things truly are working together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. So when this day of Pentecost, when the time was right, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now notice this isn't just about geography. We've certainly all reflected a lot in the last year about the importance of being in one place geographically. That's a, it's a good thing, normatively speaking. If you can, you ought to. You can't always do it. We always knew this, even before the pandemic. 
There's seasons in life when you're in the hospital, you've had surgery, you've got pneumonia, you've got an infection, you've got cancer, and you're in the hospital, and you're not in sin because you're in the hospital and you can't be wheeled down to the church to attend physically. So we know it's a normative condition. Normally, if you can go, you ought to go. We agree with that. But notice what's being emphasized here. You can be in one place. All professing Christians can be gathered under one roof, a building. And that is not unity, friends. I don't know if you've seen this, but I've witnessed churches where people were all in one building and they were completely divided. Divided against each other on who should run this ministry or that, or what color they should have painted the sanctuary, or, or who dare move the, the sign that had been out there out front for 50 years and replace it with a new one, or, or what about politics, or what about you know what the church ought to do, should they go here or go there, do this or do that, and people will be divided, or, or who the new pastor is, or et cetera, et cetera, it goes on and on. We see in the book of 1 Corinthians that the church is gathered, and Paul, listen to what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians, he says, when you guys gather together for the Lord's Supper in one place, it's for the worse. It's actually for the worse. Why? Because unity is not primarily about geography. It is about love. It is about a right relationship with God and others. And so notice that is what is happening. Yes, they're together and it's important, but notice it's easier to get people into one place geographically. It is a whole other thing. As a matter of fact, I'd say it is a work of God to not only get people to one place, but those people in one place to have one heart, one mind to say, hey, I'm not here to prefer my way. I'm not here to say, I like it when the worship is this and I want it to be that. And I like it when the pastor does this and I don't like it when he does that. And I, and I want this kind of coffee and I want these kind of chairs. And I want this kind of seats. And that's how people are. So many people in America today are religious consumers. They don't even realize it, but they've got their shopping carts and they're going around shopping going, oh, I like this. I don't like that. It's all about me. I'm the customer. The customer is always right. And friends, this is not so. We are not always right. As a matter of fact, many times we are wrong. The reason we go to church is not because we are right. It's because Jesus is right. We should go to church not to get our way, but so Jesus can have his way in us. And if that's how we come to church, whether it's online or whether it's in person, if that's the attitude we bring together, then we are doing ultimately what is the most significant statement here is that they were with one accord. Oh, for the church to truly be one in heart and in spirit. That is the sign that we know Jesus. John said this, or excuse me, Jesus said this, by this sign, all will know you're my disciples when you have love for one another. Let us practice, not just getting into one space, but let us practice being in one spirit, love, one accord. Verse two, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, this verse and the next verse is 
quite similar to passages in the Old Testament where God is manifesting his glorious presence. We refer to these as theophanies. We might think of God uh, especially appearing on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And when God appears, there is a mighty sound as of a trumpet and there is a rushing wind and the earth is quaking and there's fire. And we see both wind here in verse two. We're gonna see fire in a moment in verse three. And so what we're being reminded of is God's glorious presence. Get that into it. Think about that for a moment. What we're seeing here as they gather in a house, by the way, this is not some big, beautiful building. This is a house. They're just meeting together in a house. Very simple. They don't have a multi-million dollar budget. They don't have fog machines and strobe lights and super talented people. No, all they have is simple faith in Jesus. And they're loving one another and they're being of one accord. And what happens is God shows up. God shows up. You know, that's the best thing about a church. It's not when we go to church and we pick it apart. Oh, I like this. I don't like that. And, and you, you can improve this. Or, oh, that's really good. You know what, friends? It's not all those things. It's not the superficial thing. The greatest thing about a church is when God shows up. When you simply are there and you know God is present. You feel it. You sense it. You know it. In the praise, in the worship, in the teaching of the word. It is not just the words of a man, though a man is speaking, but through these words of a man, the human fallible preacher that God chooses, and yet because he chooses, he uses, and through grace and the Spirit, the word spoken by a mere man becomes the very word of God, so that your creator, sustainer, and redeemer is speaking a word for you this morning. Friends, that's the best thing about a church. That's what I want to know. You know, I'm a pastor. What do I look for? It's that. I just want to experience God. I just want to be in God's presence. I just want God's word to be rightly taught. I don't want somebody to be ashamed of this, to close it and put it away because it's not popular. And if I tell friends how to win friends and influence people, I'll gain a huge following. No, friends, I am not ashamed of God's word. Not only that, I don't want to open it only. I want it to be rightly divided so that we are not just interjecting our opinions, our whims, our wills, our desires onto the Word of God, but rather our hearts and minds are captured by the Word of God to speak the Word of God to the people of God. That's what makes a church great. And so we're seeing the kind of manifestation of God's presence and glory associated with his appearing at Mount Sinai and his filling of the temple and the tabernacle, his glory there, look where we're seeing it. Not in a magnificent temple or structure, but rather in the communion of the saints gathered together. Doesn't matter where they're gathered. They are together in one accord. Remember, not just geography, in heart, in spirit, seeking God, and God shows up. Notice that it says suddenly, again, it just happened. God and the spirit are not things you can control. Many people who, who believe in the work of the spirit, yet they try to manipulate or control the spirit, tempt the spirit, try to force the spirit to come under their power. But as Jesus says, that's like grasping for the wind. The spirit blows and it goes where it wants to go. So is he or she who's born of the spirit. 
We don't control the Spirit. We don't lead the Spirit. We don't tell the Holy Spirit, hey, I want to go here and I want to buy and sell and make such a profit. I want to go here and do this or that. We don't do that. The Spirit goes out ahead of us and we say, Lord, here I am. Send me. We say, Holy Spirit, where are you going? Where are you leading? Do you want us to meet in this building? Let's meet there. If you don't want us to meet in a building, we'll meet there. If you want us to move to this location, move to that location, minister to this group of people, maybe we're not comfortable with that group of people, but the Holy Spirit says, go to them. Maybe we think they won't receive us. We go anyway. Whatever it is, that's where we go. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who leads. We do not lead the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, it says, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Now, some people are thinking, what does that mean, a divided tongue? Are the tongues like cut and put upon? Are they forked tongues? Because that kind of sounds weird. Um, probably what it means, the word divided can also be translated distributed. So it's the idea that these this gift of tongues that are fire are actually given. They're distributed to each person. A few things about this. This image of fire comes from the Old Testament. Of course, fire can often represent the presence of God. Examples include Exodus 3.14, when God appears to Moses in a burning bush as, as fire, or the pillar of fire that led Israel out of Egypt. So we know that fire can represent the presence of God. Fire also represents purifying. It burns away. The scripture says, our God is a consuming fire. He's the one that burns away impurity. And so this picture of fire and a tongue can represent God's purifying of our speech so that we aren't just saying what we want to say and certainly not saying things that are profane or evil, but rather we are enabled by the Spirit to speak the things that are of God, things that are true and lovely, pure and peaceable, gentle, edifying, we are to speak these things. Furthermore, there's this picture in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24, of a tongue of fire, which may be alluded to here as well. And so what we're being told is the Spirit is coming upon, notice he gives to all of them, and one sat upon each of them. No one is left out. You are not left out. If you've placed faith in Jesus, I'm going to ask you today when we close in just a few moments to receive the filling of the Spirit today. For some, maybe they feel they've never been baptized in the Spirit. We're going to pray for that. For some of you, you you've been baptized in the Spirit, but as we're going to see through the book of Acts, it's something that it kind of fills at certain times for certain occasions. And I think other times through sin and neglect, we can we can diminish. We can grieve the Spirit of God, as the Scripture says. We're going to pray for the filling of the Spirit in just a few moments. But notice, no one is left out upon each of them. Now, some people, particularly Pentecostals, will say that this means every Christian is not just gifted by the Spirit, which I agree with, but that every Christian is gifted with the gift of tongues. Now, I'm going to argue that's not true on the basis that Paul elsewhere indicates that that's not true. But then you say, but everyone was given it here. Let me explain. Every believer is given the gift of the Spirit. Every believer, without a doubt. But when the Spirit comes, what you're going to see is the manifestation of that is not always the same. And the manifestation of the Spirit always meets the present need. In other words, there, the reason tongues were given is not because every believer has the gift of tongues at all times. We're going to see that's not true. But rather that in this moment, 
the gift that was needed, and we'll see more about this in the coming weeks of exactly why the gift of tongues was the gift that was needed at this time. It was the gift for the moment, the gift that was needed, the gift that fit the ministerial need. It's what was needed. Other times it's boldness. Other times it's healing, word of insight, discernment, knowledge. It can be so many other things, and we'll discuss that as we go. But we know that in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, do all speak with tongues, do all prophesy. And in the Greek, many people miss this in English, in the Greek, there's a negative particle before each question, which means Paul is actually answering no. In other words, he's saying in English, do all speak in tongues? No. Do all prophesy? No. And that is obvious in the Greek text, not always obvious in English renderings. So we see this spirit coming upon all of God's people, empowering them for ministry. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Again, they were filled with the Spirit. And like I said, there's obviously a moment in time where that happens for the first time. We often refer to this as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And again, when you start diving into studies about spiritual gifts, you'll find there's a fair amount of diversity on what I would say are largely secondary matters. But just to kind of make things as simple as possible and kind of organized, I would want to say that the baptism of the Spirit is that initial outpouring, that initial experience in the life of the believer. But as we're going to see, even with these apostles, some of whom we know were in the upper room, there was a continual need for a filling of the Spirit to come upon people. And Paul says that as well in the New Testament in his writings. He says, be you filled, Greek word, present tense, ongoing, be you continually filled with the Holy Spirit. He says in 1 Thessalonians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So there is an ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit, who is not just a thing or an idea or an impersonal force. He is a person. He is the third person of the Trinity. So there is a relationship with the Holy Spirit that we have. And we want to acknowledge that. And so if you think about the Holy Spirit as a person and not just a thing, it's not just like, you get baptized in the Spirit, you get a gift, and then you're fine, and now it's something you control. You are immersed into the life of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you are empowered with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be able to speak and do the things that Jesus is calling you to do for the glory of God the Father. And so there's an ongoing need because it's a relationship and we're growing. So we'll see that more as we go. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Again, something important to point out. In the Greek, that word gave is in the imperfect tense, which means this is an ongoing thing. In other words, the gift of tongues was not something given and now possessed, by the believers. Rather, they were given and the ability to continue to do it was sustained by the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as spiritual gifts apart from the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. People want to think about spiritual gifts as merely a natural talent or something we can manufacture or simply teach people to do. Some people believe you can just teach people to speak in tongues. That is not what the scriptures teach. 
It is not only a gift of the Spirit, but it is enabled by the ongoing presence of the Spirit, which means for us, friends, we must day by day as individuals, as families, as a church, as believers, we depend upon the Holy Spirit for everything. Apart from the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. As it says in Zechariah, it is not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And this is what we are being shown in the book of Acts. The same Holy Spirit who descended upon Jesus at his baptism and enabled him to fulfill his earthly ministry is now coming upon the church, the people of God, all of us today, and empowering us not only to overcome our unwillingness, because many of us are unwilling to give and serve for the sake of the gospel, but also, even if there's a willingness, many times we say, Lord, I'm willing but I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented. I don't have enough resources. And the Spirit, we're going to see all throughout the book of Acts, gloriously supplies us with more than enough to do all the work of the ministry. And so, friends, I want to end this morning with an invitation to receive the baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit. For those of you that have never received Jesus, because you cannot receive the Holy Spirit, unless you first receive the man of the Spirit, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the chosen one of God, the eternal Son of God made flesh for us and for our salvation. Unless you believe in him, you can never receive the baptism of the Spirit. And for my brothers and sisters who have believed, friends, know this. The gift of the Spirit is just that. It is a gift. I love that in Greek, the word for gift is charismata which means grace gift, gift of grace. Friend, if anyone tells you that you must earn a spiritual gift, you must be super holy, you must be a believer for many years before you're gifted with the Spirit, that is utterly false. And it's opposed to God's heart behind the gift. It is a gift of grace. Nobody gets a spiritual gift because they deserve it. This is why we have to be careful about even promoting super spiritually gifted people to positions of leadership. That doesn't mean they're mature in the Lord. It just means God gave them a gift solely by grace. And therefore, we look for gifting as well as character in the life of the church. But this morning, I want us to come before the God of grace. I want us to acknowledge our unwillingness in our hearts. Go ahead and join me right now. Let us pray a prayer of confession for the unwillingness in our hearts. Let's pray a prayer of confession about our utter inability to do the work of the gospel. And let us ask together, with hands raised up, for the baptism and filling of the Spirit and salvation for any who do not believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with humble and grateful hearts, broken and contrite over our sin. And Lord, we want to begin by confessing our sins before you. Lord, we have unwillingness in us. Lord, if anyone's watching this morning and they don't know Christ, they don't just have an element or a remnant of unwillingness. The scripture would say they have a totally unwilling and unable heart. And so, Lord, those who long for the life of God, those who long for the power of the Spirit to live for God, 
we just pray that they would look to Jesus on the cross. The Son of God who loved them and gave themself for them. Not when they were right, not when they did everything moral, but while they were dead in their sins, Christ died for the ungodly. Let them therefore look to Christ in grace, knowing there is a God of grace who forgives. Lord, we pray that you would even now renew their hearts, take out that heart of flesh, give them a heart of stone, a heart that is able to believe and to love and to give and to serve. Grant them salvation this morning. Transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Let them know the glory of God and reflect it forever. Touch them now. Lord, for my brothers and sisters, we confess that even though we are born again, we're children of God, there's no condemnation in Christ, we're not losing our salvation, and yet, Lord, if we are humble and honest, we all find in us, myself included, an unwillingness to give and to serve fully and sacrificially for the gospel. Lord, we pray right now, your Holy Spirit, supernaturally, would create in us a not only an ability, but a passion, a desire to give of ourselves, of our substance, of our treasure, of our hearts for the glorious name of Christ. Help us to give with joy, serve with joy, send us out into the harvest field. Lord, we pray also and confess that of ourselves, we can do nothing as Jesus said in the Gospel of John, unless we abide in you, the true vine, we can do nothing. Holy Spirit, help us to abide in Christ. Lord, give us the ability to do the work of the ministry, to speak forth the word of God truthfully and accurately and in love, seasoned with grace. Help us to do so boldly. Help us to do those acts of kindness and mercy and justice and grace that show forth the kingdom and give us the courage to evangelize, that is, to invite people into the kingdom which we are showing them. Lord, we know the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. We confess that we have fallen short so often of that mandate to go out into all the world and to make disciples. May your spirit come upon your people if any have not been baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit and gifted for ministry, Lord, we pray now with hands uplifted. I'm going to ask my brothers and sisters to lift up their hands. May the Spirit of God rain down upon them. May the gift of the Holy Spirit promised all those who believe in Jesus fall upon them. May they begin to speak in tongues, prophesy, heal, speak the word boldly, repent of sin, evangelize, give with generosity, Lord, overwhelm them with the power of the Spirit. Lord, for those of us who've been baptized in the Spirit, Lord, fill us afresh, fill us anew. Show us if in any way we are quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit through our lives, through our actions, through disobedience, through unbelief. Fill us with the Spirit again. Use us, Lord, to bring the mission of the gospel to all the world. And I pray for us as an image church community, both those that live nearby in Orange County and all my precious brothers and sisters that join us from outside the area, different parts of the country and even the world, Lord, use us to go out into the world 
and not live the rest of our lives to see how much we can save for ourselves till the day we die. Lord, help us to live in such a way that we give for the kingdom and inherit eternal life. May your spirit be upon us. May Christ be glorified. Go with us this week. And I pray when we gather again Sunday, we can share reports of how the spirit has worked in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you go this morning, I have announcements. And, and I don't want you to think about this as just kind of an add-on to the message. I want you to think about it as a part of the message, being in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, being guided on God's mission together. And so there's a few announcements that I want to make. First and foremost, next Sunday, we will be meeting in person in San Juan Capistrano at 10.30 a.m. If you are able, we would love for you to join us. If Obviously, if you're sick, if there's some issue you can't physically get there or you're outside the area, we would love you and welcome you. And we want to affirm the validity of the Lord speaking the power of his word through the medium of the internet, that it is valid, just as it was valid for Paul to pen a letter and have it carried by by horseback or, or by foot over thousands, hundreds of miles or thousands of miles, and the Spirit was able to minister the Word. So we believe the Word is rightly and truly ministered even through the internet. So we want to affirm our online community. So be sure to join us then. We also have a midweek Bible study. We're going through the Old Testament. We're going through the book of Exodus. And again, it helps us to see the richness of the gospel and the glory of Christ. So I encourage you to join us for our study in the book of Exodus at 7 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on Wednesday. Now, our men's group is going to meet in person for a men's dinner at Bravo Burger in San Juan Capistrano from 6 o'clock to 7.30. So any guys in the area, if you just want to get together uh, with some believing men, have some food, fun, fellowship, conversation, and a time of prayer, we're going to pray together, then we would encourage you to join us. If you can't make it right at 6, but you can make it somewhere during that time slot, come on out and join us. So 6 to 7.30 this Thursday night, Bravo Burger, San Juan Capistrano. Our ladies, we have a Bible study and fellowship for you on Friday mornings. They're meeting via Zoom and then also supplementing that with some in-person uh, fellowship gatherings as well. So we'd encourage you ladies to join us for that. And if any of you would like to worship and give, if the Holy Spirit is putting it on your heart to worship the Lord through tithes and offerings, there's two ways you can do that. The first way you can do that is to go onto our website, which is imagechurchoc.com, and you can click up at the top. And there's a giving tab, and you're able to give to the Lord through that internet feature, through that giving tab. If you'd prefer to mail in your tithe or offering, you can do that also to the address 27762. Antonio Parkway, L is in Larry 514, and that's Ladera Ranch, California, 92694. Again, all that information is on our website, imagechurchoc.com. Again, friends, I pray this week will be a week of following the Holy Spirit, seeing what he's up to, yielding ourselves, spending time with the Lord, spending time with Jesus, and letting the Spirit examine our hearts and show us in what ways we have yet to be conformed to the image of Christ. And I encourage you, if the Holy Spirit puts on your heart, to send an invitation to somebody, to bring them to church, or to send them a, a video link to the Bible study, or to invite them into our Sunday service, I encourage you to do that. Or if it's just sharing the Word of God, or a, an act of kindness, mercy, generosity, just be sensitive to the Spirit, and don't quench the Spirit. If the Spirit leads, friends, follow. Let me close with this prayer of blessing. May the grace and truth 
of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, the koinonia of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you all. Thank you so much for joining with me today. And I hope to see you all next Sunday in person for our 1030 service. God bless you and have a spirit-filled week.